This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Lindsay Cosberg, Vice President for External Affairs at the RAND Corporation. It's my pleasure to introduce our speakers. Brian Michael Jenkins is one of the world's leading experts on terrorism. He is senior advisor to the president and CEO of RAND and a prolific writer and commentator. Brian is frequently invited to testify before Congress and in recent years has helped lawmakers better understand the challenges of homegrown terrorism and the impact of the death of Osama bin Laden on al-Qaeda. Brian is co-editor of The Long Shadow of 9-11, America's Response to Terrorism, a collection of essays by 18 RAND researchers that explore the military, political, fiscal, social, cultural, psychological, and even moral implications of U.S. policymaking since 9-11. Jim Thompson will be interviewing Brian. Jim has led the RAND Corporation's efforts to improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis for the past 22 years as our president and CEO. I hope you will enjoy their sobering but insightful conversation. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Lindsay. Well, as that, those, that introduction of, of each of us uh, tells you, uh, we've been at this uh, together for a long time, and in the early part of that period, the issue was always how are we going to get funding underneath this program on terrorism because the clients weren't interested. And I remember having to make a pitch to the, the board of the now defunct Systems Development Foundation to get a pea chunk of their money on the, making the case that clients would not pay for research on terrorism, but terrorism was a very important area for us to be investing in and studying. And I have to admit, I was met with an awful lot of blank stares. But they went along with that, and we did get the uh, the money that we had asked for. And uh, because of that, we were able to be uh, at the nation's service uh, in a better way than we were what had never ever been if we hadn't had that and hadn't had this guy to uh, to take uh, the lead in putting together our program. So we'll come back to some of those old days toward the end. But I thought. Uh, we might begin, since we're here because of a book uh, that we put together. That uh, book, uh, several people uh, came to me, but they, they sent, uh, most importantly, Brian Jenkins to talk to me about the book. And, and so I thought we'd start with the genesis. You know, what were the arguments you made, and, and, why, and what did, how did it turn out? Well, first of all, let me, let me go um, uh, off course here for, for a moment and... Uh, this is scary, you know. This is like doing your oral exams in front of 200 people. Uh, but um, first, I, I do want to I do want to thank uh, my my co-authors in in, in the book, um, uh, who will leap up here if I if I do any of them injustice, and also thank uh, my co-editor John Godges for for his terrific work. But but. I really want to thank, uh, personally, Jim Thompson, uh, congratulate him on, on his successful 22 years at RAND, and thank him for the support that he has given this area of research, and indeed uh, that he gave uh, uh, to this book. When I did talk to, uh, to Jim, I said we wanted to put together a volume uh, that would be ready for the uh, uh, 10th year 
not quite an anniversary volume. In fact, we, we imposed ourselves a, a, a rule on ourselves that it would either be ready to go in July or we would wait till November, but we wouldn't try to come out in September and get lost in the tsunami of other 10-year anniversary volumes, and, and, and we did make uh, July. I indicated that we wanted this book to be more than a mere sampler of past RAND research. In fact, uh, each one of the authors was challenged uh, to, to utilize the, the research, the knowledge that they had gained uh, from looking at this topic, many of them for uh, many years before 9-11, uh, but to go beyond that and to really critically think about the experience of America of the last 10 years, uh, to ask themselves, how has this changed us as a nation? Uh, what did we do right? Uh, what mistakes did we make? Uh, what are the challenges that we confront going forward? Because if there is one uh, uh, area of, of remarkable consensus in the book is that none of us believe that the uh, death of bin Laden or the absence of, of a terrorist, a major terrorist attack on an American target uh, abroad or at home since 9-11 means that this contest is over. And so how do we go on? And, and Jim told me at the time uh, we didn't have the money for it. There just wasn't enough money, but somehow, remarkably, um, um, he went to um, uh, those of you who support uh, the RAND Corporation, and, and uh, I got the message that, in fact, we had a budget for the book. Um, we didn't have enough budget to pay all of the authors for the time they would spend in writing it, and I had indicated uh, when I heard that, that I had never anticipated giving anybody any money to write it, <laughs> that this was going to be a privilege to be invited aboard as a co-author. And I must say, my, my, um, all of my colleagues really stepped up to the challenge and they worked hard. Uh, they did this on their own time uh, and, and they produced what I think are a, a, a splendid uh, a set of very muscular, very opinionated uh, essays uh, that really quite candidly say this we got right, this we got wrong, and some things we disagreed on and, and, and still debate one another and pushing and shoving, and that's well within the RAND tradition. Well, you might uh, tell, uh, tell the audience a little bit about the, just sort of the main key themes of the book uh, in particular areas where I think the, more or less there was a consensus. Well, part of it deals with, with an area where there was some consensus and some debate, and that is uh, our, our present role in Afghanistan. Uh, the problems we face there is that uh, the construction of national institutions, uh, national army, national police force, the other institutions required to support that, uh, is probably going to take longer than the American people are willing to support 100,000 American troops deployed in Afghanistan. And so how do we address that? Do we withdraw now? Uh, how do we stay in in order to uh, achieve our goals of prevent a Taliban takeover, prevent a return of al-Qaeda to Afghanistan? And so one of the major themes of the book is focusing on that, and I think that the view there is 
the consensus view is that if we are going to stay, we're going to have to significantly reconfigure our efforts to, to do so. Uh, part of the book deals with what might be called the, uh, the reactions and, and uh, in some cases overreactions and, and, and things that we did after. Uh, in, in the wake of, of, of 9-11, I think, again, there's probably a consensus view that uh, whatever one thinks of Saddam Hussein, and the planet definitely is better without him, uh, that the invasion of Iraq was a huge diversion of resources, got us into a, a messy insurgency that ended us costing us heavily in, in, in lives, heavily in treasure, and indeed gave, uh, gave al-Qaeda's recruiting a lift. Uh, now, fortunately, they blew the opportunity uh, because of their uh, wanton massacre of fellow Muslims, which was a source of debate within um, al-Qaeda itself. They alienated much of their perceived and, and potential constituency. Part of the book deals, a number of the chapters deal with, with the issues of homeland security. Um, this is something we've devoted a great deal of effort to, and are we doing it right? Are we doing it within, uh, within the law? Are we doing it uh, efficiently and effectively? We, we have expended enormous uh, resources on this, and in, in some cases are going to have to find some new ways of doing this. And I think that's probably one of the other underlying themes in the book. In the first 10 years uh, since 9-11, there are various uh, estimates of what this has cost us, but one of the estimates is that this has uh, cost the country, in addition to the lives, $3.8 trillion. Um, we can't spend another $3.8 trillion in the next decade, and so we're going to have to get uh, a hell of a lot smarter about how we how we do this. Um, there was, and, and that, that, by the way, really is going to call upon what Rand is very, very good at, and that is uh, um, um, as we explore some of these alternatives and as we begin to measure risk uh, and, and think about how we can do this in ways that are uh, uh, effective, efficient, and appropriate, uh, and balance those, I, I think, is going to be one of the challenges going forward. There are chapters that say we really have not engaged uh, al-Qaeda effectively on the political warfare front uh, on, in terms of countering their narrative. Um, at the same time, in, in my own chapter, I talk about uh, the mistake of not fully engaging the American public. That is instead of relying on powerful American traditions of courage, sense of community, resiliency, self-reliance, we have, we have tended to turn the American public into passive bystanders, potential victims, constantly asking the question, are we safer now? Um, in fact, going forward, we're going to have to not only engage the public, but in my view, empower them to... Uh, take a greater role in, in understanding how security works, uh, having realistic expectations of that, and participating. I think the book um, <clears throat> lays out, I think, a, a, an overview of al-Qaeda that most people agree, and that is the, the efforts by the, the U.S. and its allies to 
defeat al-Qaeda Central, well, the al-Qaeda Central, which is largely in Pakistan and was in Afghanistan, now largely in a few other countries, Yemen and other places. Those efforts have have borne a lot of fruit, One, an example of which is the killing of bin Laden. Um, but uh, the threat has therefore uh, morphed. And it would be, I think it would be useful if you sort of gave an explanation of the changing nature of that threat, even as we're having good success against the main al-Qaeda, what there, the threat still, there is still a threat, whether it's the same degree and so forth, one can debate. But, but Jim, yeah. that, that is a good point. Undoubtedly, we, we have had a measure of success in degrading al-Qaeda's operational capabilities. We have dispersed its its training camps, and the issue is not so much the training, but this way, this was an easily accessible assembly point for terrorist volunteers from around the world, uh, a, a continuing talent show for Al Qaeda's operational planners, and enabled them to put together these these ambitious um, strategic terrorist strikes, culminating in 9/11. We certainly have. Uh, we have degraded that capability. We have decimated al-Qaeda's leadership. Um, we have kept the remaining leaders uh, on the run as a consequence of not just American efforts, but of unprecedented uh, unanimity of focus and cooperation among the world's intelligence services and law enforcement organizations. We have made the terrorists operating environment a lot more hostile to them. And, and we regularly see uh, in, in the press accounts of yet another, another terrorist plot being uncovered and thwarted. Al-Qaeda has not carried out a successful terrorist attack in the West since 2005. And certainly that is progress. But at the same time, we have not dented their determination one bit. Um, they have morphed, as, as you correctly put it. Um, what we're dealing with today is, is a much more decentralized uh, enterprise, one that is far more dependent on its affiliates, on its field commands in, in Yemen, in North Africa, elsewhere, uh, more dependent on its allies, more dependent on its ability to inspire individuals uh, around the world to uh, uh, carry out attacks on their own. In fact, one of the fundamental changes is Al-Qaeda's embrace of a do-it-yourself terrorist strategy, calling upon its members to do whatever they can wherever they are. And that poses, uh, while that's good news in the sense of perhaps blunting their capability of carrying out the major attacks, at the same time, uh, we're now dealing with tiny conspiracies and with individuals, and that's a much more difficult challenge uh, to deal with that, uh, especially in an environment where Americans tend to overreact even to the revelation of failed plots. So if we en end up with one individual, uh, uh, Abdul Muttalib, the, the young Nigerian with a bomb in his underpants, uh, the bomb fails, but instead of a sigh of relief, uh, we throw down nearly a billion dollars in deploying a thousand uh, full-body scanners to airports across the country. Uh, and uh, Jack Riley 
uh, in his chapter uh, addressed this issue uh, and, and really uh, underscored the fact that we, we, have to be, we have to look at aviation security in a new way in the future. I think you he and I were talking earlier, and I just to put in my own view, I think one of our great weaknesses as a country and as a strategic actor is the the ease with which we can be provoked to overreact. And uh, we are so quick to react, overreact, and it's used by our adversaries as an, as an aid for on their side because our overreaction becomes helpful to them in their pursuing their political strategy of rallying their base to support uh, support what they want to accomplish. And that's not just true of terrorists. It's definitely been true in this post-9-11 year, in my view, but also it's true of countries like Cuba, Iran, and others who just easily provoke us to do uh, what, in my view, are frequently stupid things but, uh, and don't get us a lot of gain. But I want to come back to this issue of defeating, of defeating uh, al-Qaeda, or certainly degrading is the right word, al-Qaeda central, uh, because you, you touched on it, but since we have a lot of members of the consular corps here tonight, I, I saw three coming in who are all part of our uh, members of our, represent our allies, some of our allies. So what about our allies? What, uh, you know, a lot of Americans think our allies are useless and a burden. And uh, so what's your, uh, what's your take on, in, in respect to this particular activity? Well, it's true. I'm sorry. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't think that, but you got a lot of Americans who, you know, think that. Um, you know, it, it is, uh, again, it comes out in the book in a number of the chapters where, where we view for, uh, uh, the, the fact that the United States had a tendency to, to go it alone, in a sense, to stiff its allies and, and, and not build coalitions, but basically uh, um, go racing off on, on its own as one of the fundamental errors. That is not the way the United States... Uh, traditionally behaves. Uh, we traditionally build coalitions carefully and, 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 and benefit from that. As I mentioned previously, in the area of intelligence, sharing of intelligence, uh, this has been remarkable. This is not something which is easily described in, in, in newspaper articles or headlines, but the amount of cooperation that is taking place uh, um, most of all, but not exclusively, to the uh, uh, like-minded governments that have been in, in, uh, in, involved in this contest is just is just extraordinary. That is unprecedented in in, in the world. Uh, but that cooperation extends beyond those who are traditionally allies and includes uh, some people who with whom we haven't had those traditional relationships. And I think, in part, that's Al Qaeda's doing. Uh, Al Qaeda, right after 9/11, carried out terrorist attacks in 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 Kenya, in Indonesia, in Saudi Arabia, in Tunisia, in Morocco. Uh, those are countries that might have otherwise preferred to be passive bystanders in a contest between Al Qaeda and America. Uh, but when Al Qaeda carried out major attacks on their soil, that made it personal, and and they became involved in in a a real way. So that is. Progress. The the allies are also uh, uh, deeply involved in in efforts to to uh, deal with uh, Al Qaeda. To, to, uh, they're they're deeply involved in Afghanistan, although clearly are growing weary of the burden as we are ourselves in this in in this country. Um, I think what has happened since 9/11 is is 
really raising some questions about our traditional alliances, like, like NATO. My own view is that they still play an important role. Look at the recent events in, in Libya, which was a NATO operation. It's good news that it was a NATO operation, but at the same time, the fact that taking on Libya with air power alone stretched the capacity of the NATO alliance also underscores some of its, some of its fundamental fundamental weaknesses. Uh, but at the same time, NATO is involved in a, uh, a joint effort to deal with, with piracy uh, off, the, uh, off the Horn of Africa. NATO is involved in Balkans. None of those are missions for which NATO was initially created, but which it has um, been forced to deal with and I think the question going forward uh, and now is going to be how do we configure this alliance uh, in a way that it can perform these essential and very useful roles or does NATO become uh, simply a talking shop? Um, to move to a different subject, and you, you mentioned going by that in passing that there had been some differences of views in the book on Afghanistan and and uh, in the in where the war should go, given that the war was originally conceived with the objective of denying a sanctuary for for tra- training and operational uh, command to uh, keep keep to Al Qaeda, and uh, you know that's partly been accomplished, of course, but but there still is the the ongoing war, and there is the potential for things going backwards. So uh, that was, could you give people a little sense of the difference and giving due, uh, I'm sure giving due value to the other side of the, the argument? Well, it, it, it is a debate. And the United States initially went into Afghanistan to, to uh, topple the Taliban, and which was a prerequisite to really going after al-Qaeda. That's why we were there. There was no intentions that we would... Uh, stay there to become engaged in in a a, a lengthy insurgency by a resurgent uh, Taliban. Um, There was no notion at that time that we were going to get into the business of nation building. Um, In fact, one way of looking at it is, is our allies did us the favor in the sense that uh, we came in to chase al-Qaeda uh, they came in, and their contribution was really, with certainly some remarkable exceptions uh, uh, among our NATO allies, but for the most part to engage in other than combat operations, to engage in what they could contribute, which turned out to be nation-building. Meanwhile, the Taliban made a striking com- uh, comeback and we were obliged to return with a large contingent of combat forces, but also in the process inherited this, this costly uh, nation-building exercise. Um, the debate we face right now um, is, is not remarkably different from the debate that the British government faced in, in the late 19th century after losing a couple of disastrous wars in Afghanistan. And in fact, in one briefing I gave uh, some years ago after 9-11, I mischievously took a, a, a British book uh, which talked about the debate between the so-called forward policy, deploying lots of British regiments uh, up in this turbulent part of the world, 
uh, versus a policy of creating uh, uh, native regiments, to use the term, uh, which would be uh, encadred, officered by, by British officers, which would, instead of trying to win a war, would manage conflict on a turbulent frontier. Uh, I then revealed in this briefing on the last slide that with exceptions of changing dates and changing some of the language, which in the original was in sort of a quaint British dispatches language, that this was taken verbatim from an 1897 uh, uh, debate that, that took place in London. Um, at any rate, um, the, the authors of the book um, do believe that Afghanistan, that we probably cannot sustain things in Afghanistan. So the issue is um, what risk do we take by withdrawing, at what speed do we withdraw, versus some very interesting chapters by Seth Jones, by, by um, Arturo Munoz, and others that say, look, we can reconfigure this in, in a way that we will rely more on local self-defense, more on traditional tribal forces, and, and create something that will, will really be sustainable. The current troop deployment is not sustainable, but the risks of withdrawal um, are, are there. And so how can we, how can we reconcile this and have, have recommended some fundamental changes in strategy? We're doing some of that now, but it's really, it, it's really marginal. Um, is that the, the appropriate response? Uh, that's hard to say. So, so Afghanistan, if you read those chapters, that's a, that's a fascinating and, a, and at times a bit of a contentious uh, a set of arguments put forth in, in, in those particular chapters. Right. And just uh, for the people who may refer to Seth Jones, who's one of our specialists on this part of the world, and, and Seth not only is analyzing and writing about this, he's out in Afghanistan trying to do it. Uh, so he's helping the the, uh, the command with the, this exact uh, issue. Can I can I add on that? But what what is interesting about the authors of these uh, uh, of this particular book is 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 uh, these are not the armchair quarterbacking of, of dovish dons sitting in Santa Monica. If you look at the bios of of, of, of the authors, um, uh, Seth Jones is a remarkable example, but but others are Turo Munoz. Uh, years in the CIA went into Afghanistan during the original invasion in 2001. Others uh, uh, who have served in the, in the intelligence community or in the diplomatic corps or in the military service uh, or in the Department of Justice or in the Department of State. Um, uh, this, the, the group who wrote these are people who have not only studied these matters, but in fact who have been on the front lines uh, of diplomacy, of intelligence, uh, in, in, in the area of law enforcement, and indeed in the military, and have seen these things firsthand. Well, I think we should, uh, we should turn to the audience. I've got one more question, but I'm going to, wait, I'm going to let the audience, I'll save it to the end. So we, uh, we have, uh, I think, uh, people with mics uh, available to, to uh, be there. I see, we, I see we have one right down here, which means I've, I, that's easy for me to see. I've learned from many years of moderating. You've got to look to the other places, but we'll start Excellent. with Dick here. We'll start with audience Q&A. Yeah. Um, 
I'd like to come back to your comments about um, um, the, the reaction or overreaction the U.S. has made with regard uh, to the security of air travel. I'm reminded of this every time I go through LAX uh, to get on a plane. I've read uh, Jack Riley's uh, chapter, which makes a case, and I won't repeat the details about in some areas we've really overreacted. Um, in the last few days, the last week or so, the two co-chairmen of the government commission on 9-11 have come out with their 10-year relook on what the U.S. has done. Now, I haven't read the report. I've just, I've seen newspaper articles and I've seen things on TV. And they, uh, they seem to say that we haven't done enough with respect to air travel security, that there's still vulnerabilities, there are places that we should do more, etc. I'd be interested in your comments on that. Well, I mean, can, I think it's possible that uh, you, b both of those things could be so. I mean, just it's possible that some of what we've done on one part of the air security part is overdone, where uh, while huge holes are left in other parts. Actually, the author's here, so we could we could defer <laughs> to him. So uh, rather, we could give our own interpretation of what Jack meant to say. But we'll. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I, I did want to point out Jack Riley is here, and, and certainly after the session, you should all descend <laughs> upon him. Um, but look, what what is interesting is is here. Here's a. I'm going to begin with a question. Why is it that in any discussion of terrorism, in and almost if 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 not the first, then certainly the second question in an American audience will address the topic of aviation security. And, and, and the reason really is, it has to do with uh, Americans have limited, unless they work for the government, have limited contact with the federal government. And there's really only sort of three entities of government people regularly deal with. Uh, one is the U.S. Post Office, and not so much anymore, apparently. Um, <laughs> One is the IRS, and, and we write checks to the IRS. It's this distant thing unless you're being audited. And, and regularly, IRS offices are threatened with bombs and occasionally blown up. Um, but commercial aviation is where we really directly, for many people, it's our only encounter, direct encounter, with the federal government. And for many people, it's a hands-on experience. Um, <laughs> And, and we spend, now this, it is, it, it remains a terrorist obsession to, 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 to blow up airplanes. I mean, they've, they've tried a number of times and, and they have unfortunately succeeded in, since 9-11. Uh, every time they tried to plant the device on board an airplane, they succeeded in getting it on board. Now, the planes always didn't, didn't always blow up because the shoe bomber's bomb didn't work, Abdul Muttalib's bomb didn't work, some other devices didn't work. We had some intelligence given to us that enabled us to intercept uh, bombs that had been placed on, on cargo aircraft, but in the case of two uh, Russian airplanes uh, flying out of Moscow, two suicide bombers got on board and, and, and killed uh, a total of 88 passengers. So we know it's a terrorist obsession. 
And so we spend a great deal on this. I mean, the fact is we board about seven to 800 million passengers a, a year in the United States. We spend $7.4 billion on TSA, on aviation security. It's about nine or 10 bucks per passenger boarding. And so this is a big effort. Uh, we also know, in a sense, that we're on, and I think this is really the, the, the logic behind uh, uh, the arguments that Jack Riley makes, we're, we're in a sense on, 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 a, on, a, on a losing path here. Uh, passenger loads are growing. The number of procedures, security procedures, are increasing. I mean, since 9-11, shoe bomber, take off your shoes. Uh, Heathrow bomb plot, restrictions on liquids. Um, Abdul Muttalib, full body scanners. Uh, so the challenges are, are, are increasing. We're not increasing the number of screeners, so we're stressing the system. More importantly is that terrorists are demonstrating that they can build and conceal bombs in ways that make them undetectable, but all but the most intrusive physical searches. So I don't think the answer is more or less. I think the, the answer is <clears throat> looking at something fundamentally differently, looking at a different way of do doing it. And that means, we, we also know, by the way, we have one other problem in, in terms of a aviation security. I, I think probably the reactions to the, to the body scanners and, and enhanced pat-downs was a bit exaggerated by the news media, but it's a signal there. And we are, we're basically approaching the edges of American tolerance. And to push too much further, we're going to risk turning the passengers into adversaries of the very systems that are put in place to protect them. And that destroys a security system. So can we do this differently by placing uh, perhaps some greater emphasis on looking at people? It doesn't mean profiling. It has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. But attempting to allocate risk and allocate resources more effectively by being more discerning about our passenger loads instead of this 1920s Ford assembly land, uh, plant approach of uh, the way we look for small objects, which is costly. No, we're going to lose that one. And so uh, that, I think, is where we stand with aviation security. Uh, just to pile on more security, I, I, I don't think that's realistic. I think we really have to fundamentally rethink this thing. There is a RAND study coming out pretty soon on the, the possibility of a trusted traveler program uh, and gets into some of the compli complications of the game, the possible game theoretic, as you would understand. And uh, we'll, I think that will be out pretty soon. Um, there's, so, a, there's a question in the okay, back. Okay, good. If you've got one back there, good. I couldn't see any hands. So, yeah. Oh, thanks. I see one uh, here, too. We often think in terms of Islam, jihad, or Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, in broad generalities, so lately I've been reading T.E. Lawrence, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and uh, the tribal nature of what was going on at that time <clears throat> in the area of the world he was uh, dealing with, uh, it just really struck me. Uh, and I wondered to what extent the nature of tribal identity and response and dynamism and reaction uh, is something that we need to kind of get a better grip on rather than these large conceptual things that we tend to develop our policies with. Two, two quick answers to that. One is you point to 
a general problem in our, in this nation's understanding of our adversaries. Um, what is fascinating is that uh, certainly during World War II, uh, we carefully examined uh, the um, uh, the books that had been written by the German generals to understand their, how they looked at strategy and tactics. And in fact, if you remember uh, the movie Patent at one point, George C. Scott, having defeated Rommel's columns in North Africa, shouts triumphantly, Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book. <laughs> and, and we did. And during the Cold War, um, uh, institutions ran uh, leading them devoted a great deal of scholarship to understanding not just counting Soviet missiles and warheads and tank, divi tank divisions parked in Europe, but, but to understanding Soviet behavior, to understanding uh, their concepts of strategy, their operational codes. And that informed our, our, our strategy. When it came to terrorists, we had a tendency to dismiss them uh, as mad dogs, uh, Witches are wicked, dragons breathe fire, terrorists are evil, no further inquiry necessary. Uh, the idea that there were, to understand them, risked being misunderstood as to be understanding of them and in somehow an apologist for them. And so we, I, I, we, that has changed in the last couple of years and certainly uh, was not the case at, at, at Rand. Uh, but, so that's one thing. But, the fact is that in dealing with Al-Qaeda itself, we are dealing with a tribal warrior subculture. And what we're facing in Afghanistan and Pakistan and in Yemen and in other places are very traditional warrior cultures that are threatened, threatened by us. In a, they say they're threatened, but they are threatened by us in a very real way. Um, not by some clever uh, uh, propaganda programs we have or political warfare, but by our very concepts of, of gender equality, of, of democracy, of, of other things. And it's not, I'm not going to repeat the, the silly phrase of they hate us because of what we are. But there is no question that we're dealing with, with, with a... A, a subculture which is really, in terms of Al-Qaeda's ideology, managed to transcend the original Al-Qaeda organization and become a conveyor for individual uh, efforts to demonstrate manhood, prove one's prowess as a warrior, engage in an epic struggle, uh, do good for God um, and ultimately reap reward in a, a hereafter, uh, those are powerful recruiting themes. And in fact, without making an insidious uh, uh, comparison, um, in, in military recruiting worldwide, we look to young men and we tell them this is a chance to serve your country, to be a patriot, to also engage in an adventure. And we've got some really cool weapons and you know, jump out of airplanes and do all of this stuff. That has universal appeal. But the danger is, as I say, that this becomes a conveyor for individual discontents. And anyone who is unhappy with their position in, their, in life, disillusioned, 
their soul running on empty, will em- may embrace this technology and find resonance and reinforcement for their aggressive tendencies. We have the question right here. Hi, uh, I'm Jimmy Delshad. I have a question. Uh, you kind of referred to it a little bit, but Israel is one country that so many people want to bring it down in so many different ways, especially with their airplanes and all that. And Israel is one that has been very successful in defending their airlines and all that because they use totally different methods than we use. We keep using technologies and people. They use more question and answer. They stop people even before getting to the airport. When you get to the airport, they question us to death. Okay? And they look at our faces and our sweat and all of that. Is America ever going to be ready for that type of work? The, the, the answer is that there are certainly uh, uh, components of the Israeli approach that can be incorporated into our security, and that's one of the things that, that um, um, we are looking at and, and that is talked about. That doesn't mean the wholesale adoption of the Israeli approach because there are also some fundamental differences. And the fundamental differences is whereas uh, the, the Israeli airlines uh, boards a, a small number of passengers compared to the United States on a small number of flights. As I say, we board daily 1.8 million on average passengers in the United States on tens of thousands of, of, of flights. Uh, moreover, Israel has the advantage in its screening program in that the passenger load of LL aircraft or people going to and from Israel is a relatively homogeneous passenger load and it's easier to apply those kinds of methods and uh, whereas if you look at the passenger load of uh, an American flight it is much more diverse. Uh, Then final difference is that um, Israel is a country because of its unfortunate experience in, in, in terrorism um, basically has a population that is is willing uh, to put up with those measures, uh, whereas uh, the United Americans are are, can, are cantankerous bunch. And, um, I mean, Americans want their security to be passive, non-intrusive on their privacy, non-intrusive on their person, and they want it to be egalitarian. And invariably, in the security lines, you hear, well, why am I being checked and not him? And, and why are they looking at her and, and, and not this one? So the minute you put up into effect any kind of a discerning system, um, you know, I, I used to work on a ranch years ago, and when you, when you cut a heifer out from the herd, the, the heifer gets nervous and the herd gets nervous. And some, sometimes the same way with with folks at airports. So, yes, yes, we, we can and are trying to incorporate some of the features of a discerning system and certainly some of the uh, techniques and technology. I was just uh, spent a couple of weeks in Israel in, in July looking at some of the new technologies, uh, among other things, and, and those can be incorporated. But a wholesale uh, adoption of the Israeli method by the United States probably is not realistic.
have a question. Monica, are we back here? Thank you. Efrem Logredo from Barcelona Free Press. We talk about uh, what about ETA? It's been in Spain for years. And Mr. Thompson, you mentioned the fact of Cuba. The only threat that Cuba has for us is that they should produce less sugar cane so we have less mojitos here. <laughs> exactly. What about what about Venezuela? Well, um, first of all, with regard to the uh, Etaras who have been around since the 1960s, uh, this is one of the groups ethnically based uh, um, that has shown uh, remarkable uh, persistence. Uh, and and I, I, I certainly have no, no solution to, the, um, uh, to, to offer to how that, that contest ultimately uh, will end. Um, it, it, it continues to, to this day, and, and, and in fact, uh, terrorist campaigns, not, not directed so much against aviation, which we've been talking about, but, but certainly the Ataras ha have, have gone after, after surface transportation, so has, have the jihadists in Madrid, but the, uh, the, the Ataras have, have put down bombs on train tracks and in front of hotels and, and, and so on. So it is, it is a continuing, it is a continuing threat. With regard to Venezuela, we're, we're sort of at a, at a, at a strategic, uh, a bit of a strategic standoff with Venezuela. Um, we would prefer not to, not to uh, tamper with a country that provides 20% of uh, America's oil supplies and at the same time because of the nature of Venezuelan crude, uh, if they can sell a big chunk to the United States, uh, they will be in trouble. So um, therefore, we tend to suffer the rhetoric of, of uh, uh, Mr. Chavez. And, um, uh, but it is probably a, a long-term long problem. Uh, much has been made of, of whether uh, Chavez is, is providing a, a, a cooperation with uh, uh, governments like Iran or, or other, other states or even uh, some of the Middle Eastern terrorist groups. And certainly that also is, is a concern that we have, but, but I, I, my own view is that some of that is a bit exaggerated and some of that also is just uh, the president of, of Venezuela going out of his way to maintain his high profile by regularly poking a finger in America's eye. We, we want more of the interactions of the Spanish king with Mr. Uh, Chavez uh, when he said, por que no te callas, and why don't you shut up? So, so, um, so anyways, we'll move to the last, uh, last question, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say earlier I would, I would do that because I wanted... Um, uh, Brian has been doing this uh, this task of uh, of examining the roots of terrorism and strategies for dealing with it for since uh, uh, we almost forty years and so um, and I've been working with him for I hate to say almost thirty of those forty years so it's uh, it would be interesting to have a little bit just your reflections on those forty years how in particular. Has uh, what has changed? What has remained the same, and what has changed? 
Well, actually, that, that, that is anticipating a conversation I wanted to have with you about the next book. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, no, there, there has been a, a, a fundamental change uh, over the years. And I'm, I'm, and I'm not simply dividing the, the history into pre-9-11 and post-9-11, but um, the fact is that terrorism has moved from an issue that uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the height of the Cold War, was clearly a peripheral issue to become the uh, uh, strategic and diplomatic preoccupation of, 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 of this country. Um, now, the good news that, uh, is, is that that means the falling away of some other, some other enemies who, in my view, prevented, uh, presented a far more serious threat to the republic. I mean, had there been uh, nuclear war during the, uh, during the 60s, 70s, or 80s, we're talking about, talking about the end of the planet. Um, and, and terrorists have not ascended to that level, but... Uh, certainly they have become our preoccupation. I think homeland security, which is actually, when we think about it within American history, a curious term, um, has asserted itself as uh, another preoccupation of, of, of the country and uh, has been, uh, certainly in the last 10 years, a source of, of major uh, of, of major. Uh, preoccupation and expenditure. If one thing hasn't changed, and, and maybe I'll conclude with this remark, is that the fundamental nature of the threat, and this goes back to something uh, written actually in, in, in 1974 in, in, in a lucky moment, uh, uh, and, and that is that because of the, in, the invention and perfection of, of terrorist tactics, um, and because of their increasing willingness to, to kill in quantity and, and, and to kill indiscriminately because of the vulnerabilities inherent in our, in our modern society, power, and here I mean power defined crudely as simply the capacity to kill, to, to damage, to disrupt, uh, to create alarm, to oblige us to divert vast resources to security measures, that's coming into the hands of, of groups and gangs whose grievances it's not always going to be possible to satisfy, or to put it another way, the small bands of lunatics and fanatics that have existed throughout the history of humankind have become, in our age, a more important force to be reckoned with. And how we deal with that in the context of a democratic society and remain a democratic society is, to me, one of the challenges that was on the horizon in 1970s and has come front and center as one of the major challenges we face in the first part of the 21st century. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our program. So, Lindsay, are you going to...? Um, I, I will be very brief. My job is really to say thank you to Brian and to Jim for an excellent discussion this evening. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.